You can applaud that. That's good. That's good. Well, you don't often start a sermon referring to a kind of fairly obscure mathematical figure called Benoit Mendelbrot. But today, those of you who are mathematical nerds, aren't there any mathematical nerds in the building who know who I'm speaking about there? Yeah, I know. Yeah, gotcha. So we're going to talk about fractal dimensions. We're going to speak about that today. Um, I, I, I grazed past mathematics at school, just about got through by the skin of my teeth, so don't assume that there's any authority behind what it is that I'm sharing at this particular part of the sermon. But um, what, uh, what was discovered by this gentleman with the rather delightful French-sounding name was that when you look at nature, there appears to be a strange phenomenon at work in many different aspects of the created order. Now, I don't know the theological position of Mandelbrot or of any who have since followed him, but it seems to indicate to me that there is an incredible designer behind what it is that we see around us. If you, for instance, were to look at a tree and you took a branch off that tree and held that branch up against the silhouette of the tree, it would look remarkably similar to the tree. So if you just went outside and took a branch off a tree during pruning season, children, not allowed to do it now, take a branch off the tree and you hold up that branch, if it's a deciduous tree, it has a certain pattern, a certain form, a certain shape, and the leaves have a particular pattern and they... they kind of organize themselves in a very similar way to the way that you appear to see it on the larger, on the larger thing. If you, took a, if you went and found a coniferous tree, a, a fir tree, and you took the branch off the tree, and you held the branch up, you'd say, well, that looks like a tree. Some of you as, uh, who go back to the years of uh, um, difficulty and penury in your own life, might be like me, and you remember times when people didn't actually have a Christmas tree, they only had a Christmas branch. But the Christmas branch looks like a Christmas tree. If you, if you found a particular stone, a rock near a mountain, and you, you studied the shape and the form and the way in which that rock seems to break and form angles and edges and you hold that up against the mountain from which it's taken, it often looks amazingly similar to the mountain. It's called fractal dimensions. And it's really a phenomenon that God has built into creation for the purposes of, I believe, demonstrating the design behind creation and his number one objective, teaching you how to be a disciple. What? Teaching you how to be a disciple. And we're going to discover 
the fractal dimensions of discipleship as we look at Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin today. Now, it's one of the longer chapters in the Acts of the Apostles, so we're not going to read all of it. But um, I want you to turn with me to just before the chapter that we're actually going to dig into today and look at what it is that Stephen is being charged with. What What are the charges that are being brought before Stephen, that are being brought before the Sanhedrin against Stephen? And what is it that Stephen is defending himself against? Now, it may be that those of you who are apologists within the congregation here in house and online were hoping that I would do some study on apologetics this morning. We will do apologetics within the Acts of the Apostles, but we're going to do it with Paul later on in our study. Stephen is the first great apologist of the church, but the greatest of them all is Paul. And so when we see Paul in Athens in chapter 17, we're going to look at apologetics and how to build an apology for the faith uh, right there. But right here, we're going to look at the charges against Stephen and then Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7. And we're going to understand it from its narrative form. In verse 13, it says, those who came against Stephen produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Turn with me to the end of the chapter just before Stephen is murdered by this mob violence instituted and instigated by the Sanhedrin with a young man called Saul holding the coats of those who threw the rocks. In verse 51, you stiff-necked people, this is Stephen coming to the conclusion of his, of his speech, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. The first martyr of the church dying in honor of his Lord with the words of his Lord on his lips. Now, the charges brought against Stephen are that 
He is saying that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. Now, here's an important thing about deception. Unless deception is close to the truth, it won't fool anybody. And so this was a deception that was close to the truth. And all of you who kind of follow these bonkers conspiracy theories, you are following deceptions that are close to the truth, and so they fool you. But they're not the truth. But they are deceiving you into believing they are the truth. In the same way, the people who heard this conspiracy theory were deceived by something that seemed very close to the truth. What was it that Jesus was actually teaching? Well, he said that judgment would come upon Jerusalem and Jerusalem would be destroyed, including the temple itself, and it would be destroyed and not one stone would be left on another. And that prophecy, of course, was fulfilled in AD 72. That, that rubble that was created by the destruction of the temple has only in recent years been removed and has been sorted through and sifted through by archaeologists. That's how fundamental was that destruction. But what Jesus was saying was not that the judgment of God was the significant issue. What Jesus was saying was that God was not going to destroy the temple but replace it. And he was going to replace it by himself being the acknowledged place of God's presence and that all people who had a covenant relationship with him were joined to him in spirit, who were one with him, would share in the same calling and they collectively would be the temple of the living God and they individually would be the residence of the living God. And so therefore, each individual follower of Jesus and the collective people of Jesus would be the temple of the living God. The temple, the physical temple, would be replaced by a new temple. So that's what Jesus said. And that's what the New Testament teaches. And what you see at the end of Stephen's speech is a manifestation of that truth. The Holy Spirit fills Stephen, just like the Shekinah glory descending upon Solomon's temple, the glowing glorious cloud, the cloud that hovered above the tabernacle in the wilderness that was a glowing cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night, indicating God's presence, indicating a portal into the other world. That Shekinah in, in, in Hebrew, that shining cloud descended upon Solomon's temple and filled it. And the, the, the glory of the Lord was so great that the priests could not even drag themselves to get close to the altar to do their work. That same glorious manifestation came down upon the people of Jesus on the day of Pentecost and is the inheritance of every saint here today it is our inheritance the fire fell and each flame above each individual believer indicated that they now were the residents of the living God they were themselves the temple of God and collectively and individually that would be understood 
Stephen, at the end of his speech, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looks up to heaven. And what does he see? He sees heaven open. He sees an open heaven. Do you remember us talking about that over these weeks? He speaks about an open heaven. He says, I see an open heaven. There's an open heaven above him. Why is there an open heaven above him? Because he's the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. And in that moment of revelation, the Lord pulls back the veil and shows him reality. That he's been standing under an open heaven all this time. The reason that he's able to do miracles and wonders, he's able to heal the sick and speak with such magnificent power to the people who would come against Jesus is because he stands in the same place as Jesus. Jesus, who on the day of his, of his baptism saw the sky torn open and the heavens revealed and the Holy Spirit descending upon him and the voice of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm very pleased. Heaven is open. Jesus stands to welcome his friend. Isn't that amazing? Normally in the throne room, the king is seated. But in the throne room on this occasion, as heaven is open and Stephen sees his destiny, Jesus stands to welcome his friend. Now, that's the picture of Stephen's defense. He's defending against the accusation that he has taught the destruction of the temple. He's not taught the destruction of the temple. He's taught the replacement of the temple. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. And that replacement of the temple is revealed in himself because he has the face of an angel and he glows with the transfiguration that is only seen in the person of Jesus in the other parts of the Bible. And so we see in the very, in the very person of Stephen the defense against the accusation. God is replacing the temple with Stephen and with Peter and with Sally, and with Rick, and with Peter, and with, well, maybe not. Anyway, so I'm just messing with the people of Jesus. And what we have here is a fractal dimension. Because you see, what we see is that there is a call. There is a challenge. And there is a completion. In the defense of Stephen against the accusation, and in his defense, what he does is something quite amazing. He 
He offers the story of the people of Israel, or at least the first thousand years, from Abraham. And from Abraham, we get a clarity about the call. Let's go and have a look at it. The very beginning of chapter 7. Just turn with me. It's always good to have your Bible with you. Everybody get that? Yeah. It's always good to have your Bible with you. Christians and stuff like that, you know, that kind of thing. Verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, Abraham's life is a story of call, challenge, and completion. The completion being the beginning of a family that God promised him would populate the planet as it blessed the nations of the world with the blessing that God placed upon Abraham himself. That was the completion of the story. And the challenge in the midst of it is that Abraham and Sarah are childless. And they struggle to overcome this incredible challenge, which clearly is a fundamental challenge because, because the calling is to have a family that will bless the nations. And if you have no children, then what are you going to do? So you have this big challenge. But in the midst of the big challenge, there is the place of the cross, the deepest part of the valley, where Abraham goes with Isaac to Mount Moriah. And Isaac has the wood laid upon his shoulder for the sacrifice. And, and Abraham is carrying the fire, the symbol of God's presence. And they come to the mountain of, of Moriah. And the boy says, where is the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham, believing in resurrection, so the writer to the Hebrews tells us, says, God himself will supply a lamb. And there... He lays his son on an altar that he's built and on top, of the, on top of the wood that the son has brought to that mountain that one day may be called Calvary, we don't know. But the mountains of Moriah were the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. And another day would come when a son would carry the wood of sacrifice being accompanied by his father every step of the way. And then we have that first slow motion section of the Bible, the first slow motion section in all of ancient history, in all of ancient literature. The first time that slow motion is used in the narrative. Abraham reached out his hand and took the dagger raised the dagger and is about to plunge it into the breast of his son. And the angel of the Lord calls out, Stop! Now I know that you fear God. And God blesses him and says that he will inherit the gates of his enemies or the, or the authority of his enemies. The NIV calls it the cities of his enemies. It's not a great transliteration. The idea of gates is always the idea of authority. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus builds. It means the authority of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. The the gates of the enemies of Abraham and his family will be taken by Abraham's family. Speaking of a day when victory over all of the enemies of humanity will be declared and those enemies vanquished, the enemies of sin and of sickness and of sadness. Right there, in the challenge of Abraham is the beginning of the completion because the son comes home and starts his own family. And so Abraham has his own call, challenge, and completion, but really in the way that Stephen presents his story, he helps us to see the calling of the people of God. And then he goes on and tells us about Joseph and tells us about Moses. And in the stories of Joseph and Moses, we see the call, the call of Joseph to be a ruler. The challenge of Joseph as he's enslaved and sent to Egypt. The completion of Joseph as he brings his family to safety and saves the world. But Joseph is used to teach us how to deal with the challenge. As is the story of Moses. Joseph is in the prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of raping her. Potiphar doesn't believe it, clearly, otherwise he wouldn't have lived, but is angry about the circumstances that have arisen to make this possible. And so he puts Joseph in the prison. He's the head of security for Pharaoh. And in the prison is the butler, the baker, and as we said before, not the candlestick maker, but the butler and the baker. And they're in there with him, and they have dreams, remember. And Joseph is this seer, this prophet. He's able to interpret dreams. And in the midst of that, you see the struggle of his soul. He says, if you are released, then remember me, because I've been placed here against my will by wicked people. The baker loses his life. The butler goes free and forgets him. Two years later, when Pharaoh has his own dream, the butler remembers Joseph and is brought before Pharaoh. And now the challenge of Joseph's life has been brought to the point where he will be able to ascend to the mountain of completion from the valley of challenge. I've heard it said of you, says Pharaoh, that you can interpret dreams. Now up until this point, Joseph has been a boy of such magnificent gifting in all areas of his life, it's been difficult for him to say anything other than, I'm awesome. (laughs) I'm sorry you're not as awesome as me, but maybe you can celebrate the fact that at least I'm awesome. (laughs) When he hears the question of Pharaoh, He's come to the point in the challenge that allows him to see 
the full manifestation of the completion. Genesis chapter 41, verse 15. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the interpretation that he needs. But God, I can't, but God can. I can't, but God can. That is the, that is the lesson of the valley of challenge. I can't, but God can. Moses kills a guard in the hope of rescuing his people from whom he's been separated by the privilege of the Egyptian court. He's been raised as an Egyptian prince. And now he sees the injustice that his people are suffering. And he strikes the guard dead and then comes to separate two of his fellow Israelites and they turn on him. Who made you judge and ruler over us? We saw what you did. Well, the penalty for murder then as now is fairly severe. And so he runs away to the land of Midian and lives a whole lifetime, 40 years in the wilderness. And those 40 years in the wilderness will prepare him to lead others for 40 years in the wilderness. And when he comes to the mountain of God on the far side of the desert, you see, Moses doesn't live in his valley of challenge, reluctantly living out his daily life as if he hates every minute. It says in the scriptures, in, his, in Exodus chapter 3, on the far side, Moses went to the far side of the desert. Sunday school kids always used to snigger into their hands because the old translation said on the back side of the desert. On the far side of the desert, in the place where he has revealed that he's prepared to embrace his circumstances at last. He will not bridle against what it is that God is doing in his life and that the preparation that God wants to do, he will surrender to and submit to. He'll go to the far side of the desert. And on the far side of the desert, having embraced the circumstances, having recognized that this is the hand of God, he meets God in the burning bush who tells him to remove his shoes because this is a holy place and that he should bring his people once he set them free to this place to worship him. I can't do it, says Moses. And God says, correct. That's why I'm here. Stupid. And so he goes back. And we see the plagues of Egypt and we see the manifestation of God's power and we see the great clash between the powers of darkness and the powers of God's kingdom. And guess who wins? And so Moses is able to come through the valley of his challenge and come to his completion, which is the call to rescue his people. But in doing that, he has to go into their valley. 
to mentor them, not as the hero of his story, but as the mentor to the heroes in their story. Ah, wait. So maybe this is the reason that our stories always look the same. How is it that we can read the Bible and we can, we can examine the life of a person who lived 4,000 years ago, Abraham, and learn something from his life or from the life of Sarah or from the life of Ruth or from the life of Moses or from, you see what I mean? How is it that we can learn from their lives? Because their lives follow the same pattern. Their lives have a fractal dimension that connects with ours. Their life, like your life, like my life, follows the journey of the hero. The hero's journey, which is always populated by the same characters, the antagonist, the mentor, the hero, the friends of the hero. And this story always has the same characters and always has the same narrative form. There is a call. There is a recognition of weakness in the hero. The hero reluctantly very often submits to the call and goes into the valley of challenge assuming that having surrendered to the call they'll see completion immediately and of course they don't they go into the valley of the challenge and in the midst of the challenge they are shaped and prepared and made ready to fulfill the calling and in fulfilling the calling they come out of the valley of challenge with victory and in victory, they're able to share the spoils of victory with those that they've left behind, with those that they will meet in the future because the spoils of war are theirs. When he ascended on high, Jesus scattered gifts to all of the people. He who ascended was the one who descended to the lower earthly regions so that he might ascend in victory to share his mission and ministry with you. The story of Jesus the story of Joseph, the story of Moses, the story of Deborah, the story of Esther, the story of Mary, your story and mine follow the same narrative flow. There is a calling. There is a challenge in the midst of the story, a challenge that will take us to our knees, that will break all of the arrogance and foolishness from us. And in that challenge, we will find all of the energy, the power, and the resources to see the completion on the mountaintop. And if that story is a micro story instead of the macro story of your life, this is what happens. God brings you to the completion. He's taught you something. You now know how to ride a bike. The calling was, I, I want to have two wheels under me and do things like other people do. 
I, I want to be free to do that. I, I, I'm a kid. I, I want to be able to do that. The challenge is it's only got two wheels and you don't know anything about gyroscopic motion yet. So you think that you can balance standing still and you can't and you fall off and you break stuff and skin your knee and hurt yourself. And Your parents got to hold the, hold the saddle of the, of the bike to hold you up and as you wobble and get yourself stable, you overcome the challenge and you get to the point where you are ready for the Tour de France. And so what's it like coming to that mountaintop? Well, God comes to you and challenges you and says... It's just the micro story. It's not the macro story of your life, but the micro story is very important because now you've learned it. You can teach one other. Now, having come through your hero's journey of call, challenge, and completion, you can help another with their journey, with their story. You see, that's why it's a fractal Every story looks like every other story. Your story looks like the story of Jesus. You say, don't be ridiculous. Yes, it does. Not to the same degree, not to the same dimensions, but yes, it does. There is a calling. There is a challenge and there is a completion. And you can learn from every narrative of Scripture how to live this journey Every day, every day, every day is a little micro story in itself. Every day there's a calling. Every day there's a challenge. Every day there's a completion. And at the end of every day, you can journal and take note and hear afresh in your heart what it was that God intended for that day. And because you learned that this day, you can teach that tomorrow. Now, here's the thing. If we'll learn that, our children will be champions. If we learn that, our friends will become followers of Jesus. If we learn that lesson, revival will begin to bubble up. Because only when the people of God realize that all of the resources to fulfill the calling of their life are found in the story of their life, will all of these things begin to happen. There are no extra resources that are needed. They're all found in the valley. And your mentor walks beside you. This is how Jesus described the mentor. He says, I'm going to send you another one who walks alongside. I'm going to send you another parakletos. I'm going to send you another who walks and speaks with you alongside you on the journey. The most simple way to translate parakletos, paraclete, is to say mentor. Jesus has been the mentor to the disciples all through the years of their discipleship. And then he says, I'm going to send you another mentor. And he is with you now and will be in you then. And so the covenant that is spoken of to Abraham is fulfilled in your life that God will walk with you and be in you. And as this truth is made manifest in your life, as you walk with the Spirit, 
as you allow the Spirit within you to guide you, to govern you, to give you His grace, you'll find that the call and the challenge and the completion of each day becomes the preparation for the next. And the preparation for the next includes raising your children in the fear of the Lord, includes sharing your faith with your family and friends, includes being the bright light in your workplace and in your community. You become the mentor that people look for and long for. Sometimes people will say stuff like this to me. Why do people like you so much? Why do they like you? I mean, people are bold. You know, they're Americans. And so they'll ask kind of crazy questions. They say, why do you, you know, they'll hang out with me for a day or two and they'll think, people give you stuff and like you. And what is that? Is it your accent? I mean, what is that? And I said, well, you know, most of the time it's, I just kind of, yeah, accent, I don't know, nice teeth. I don't know. But you know, the honest truth is, it's like the clouds clear for them. It's like the clouds, everybody likes standing in the sunshine. And they find themselves... In a, in a moment where they think, what, what was that? I don't even know what that was. What it is, is it's the first sensation that they have. That they're standing under an open heaven. They're sensing the sunshine of his presence. That's why people like hanging out with you. Or that's why people don't. You see, because this is it. God has put eternity in the hearts of how many people? Half of the people? Or how many? God has put eternity in the hearts of how many of us? All of us. And so if God has put eternity in the heart of every person, when they are touched by eternity, they'll feel it. And when they come into contact with a person who is in constant connection with eternity, they love it. They like it. They want to be around it. Are you with me here? Do you see what it is that God wants to do? Do you see what it is that that the New Testament is speaking about when it says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yes, you'll learn how earthen it is by going through successive valleys until you really get it. Yes, you are a cracked urn. Barely usable. But the amazing thing is this. In your brokenness, the glory 
of the presence of the living God shines through. And in my weakness, God's power is made perfect. And so in the valley of challenge, we discover what the earthen vessel is all about. Moses did. Joseph did. And then in time, ooh, I don't know what's happened here. Come back. Maybe it doesn't want to come back. You going to come back? Okay. Well, it doesn't want to come back. We've got it back up there? Okay. Let's try this. Like that. And do that. No, I don't want to do that either. Can we? Try this. Okay. It doesn't want to cooperate. No. I'm not going to mess with it. I think you know how to spell completion. There's a call, there's a challenge, and there's a completion every day, every week, every month, every season, every life. All of it is a fractal dimension of the others. They're like, they're like snowflakes. If you just take a piece of the snowflake, it looks like the rest of the snowflake. Your life looks like the story of Abraham. Your life looks like the story of Ruth. Your life looks like the story of Esther. Your life looks like the story of Joseph. Your life looks like the story of Stephen. I can look at the stories of the scriptures and discover what it is that God wants to do with me. And as I learn and as I surrender and as I, as I allow him to shape my life, so each completion equips me to be the mentor for another person on their journey. What a privilege. What a privilege. So, let's do this. Let's choose right now that this is the story of our life. Let's decide right now that in the midst of our valley of challenge, we're going to learn the lessons that help us understand what it means to live under the open heaven. Amen? And if we're going to live under that open heaven, we're going to live in a place where God's revelation is not a strange thing, but a regular thing. Where God's intervention is not an unexpected thing, but, but a fully expected and appreciated thing. Where God's healing and deliverance and transformation is something that we don't see automatically like some kind of slot machine God, but we expect it and we look for it and long for it because we know that that is our inheritance as the children of God. Amen? And let's assume that in the valley of challenge each day, we're learning the lessons just enough to help another in their journey because we can be the mentor to their hero. Is this a deal that we can, we can make? Yeah? We could kind of take this on. 
Okay. So if today you're ready to be the mentor to another, long for your children to to come into a full knowledge, a saving knowledge of the Lord. And it may be that you feel like that's a ship that sailed. I promise you it hasn't. If you're a person who's looking for and longing for your friends and family to come to know the Lord, if you're looking for your colleagues and your workmates to come to the Lord, then stand with me right now. Stand with me right now. Let's resolve in our hearts not to strive in our own strength to see it happen, but surrender to the process of the valley that means it will happen. And maybe, maybe for the first time, you'll use your body as an instrument of prayer and you'll open your hands to the open heaven. And as you open your hands to the open heaven, you're opening your heart to the open heaven. And you're saying, Father, keep me here. Keep me under the open heaven, Lord. Send me revelation through the day and in the night. Cause the signs and wonders of your kingdom to be displayed in my life. Lord, do your work in me and through me. And we say, Amen. And if you're in your valley right now, struggling with chronic conditions, pain of your body, of your mind, and of your heart, then in this moment, when there are heavens open above so many, Come and be prayed for by others who want to stand with you in your valley. Is it a valley of sickness? Is it a valley of sadness? Is it a valley of shame? Do you struggle internally with things consistently holding you? The people around you are just like you. I'm just like you. Every story follows the same form and the same shape. Emma and the team are going to be available over here in the pews that have been set aside for prayer. And you can come anywhere at the front to ask another brother or sister to come and stand with you in the valley and ask that the blessings of the open heaven come to you right now. Start moving if you need that. Don't hold on. Come for it. You can sit over there in the socially distanced pews. You can come up here. The band will play. <laughs>